This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 2. Calvin's Divided Judicial Legacy Quote, If we distinguish between a theoretical and strict theonomic viewpoint on the one hand, and more practical and loose theonomic viewpoint on the other, we might say that Calvin was not a theonomist, but a theonomist. That is, an examination of Calvin's theoretical writings on the judicial aspects of the Mosaic Law will reveal that he believed that they were given to Israel in a rather unique fashion and are not binding on modern civil governments. Yet, an examination of Calvin's practical writings and sermons, such as the sermons on Deuteronomy, will reveal that he used the Mosaic Law, including its judicial aspects, as the foundation for social, political, and legal wisdom, and generally favored imitating the Mosaic Laws in the modern world." James B. Jordan, 1990. John Calvin was a transitional figure. Adam and Jesus Christ were the ultimate transitional figures. Everyone else is either a mini-transitional figure or a micro-transitional figure. He inherited a great deal of philosophical baggage from the past. He scrapped only part of it. Whenever he relied on the Bible or Augustine, he was usually secure from misinterpretation, but in several key doctrinal areas, he was confused. I do not mean merely muddled, I mean double-minded. He proclaimed opposite positions on different occasions. He offers a yes on one occasion and a no on another. This litany of sic et non has continued down through the centuries in Calvinism. This dualism has led to the creation of rival wings within Calvinism, wings that are still flapping against each other. As a result, Calvinism does not soar. It scurries around on the ground like a frightened chicken. Calvin's confusion parallels the confusion of the Christian church from the 5th century onward. This confusion is closely related to the biblical covenant model. Indeed, It is an historical manifestation of that covenant's five points, the transcendence of God, the hierarchy of institutional authorities, the law of God, the sanctions of God in history, and the millennium. The early church correctly formulated the Trinitarian doctrine of God. No one in the camp of the Orthodox is suggesting the need to revise the early creeds on this point. Had the church failed here, we would all be Arians or even worse, just like the vast majority of our neighbors are today. On the question of the absolute sovereignty of God, however, the Pelagians steadily triumphed over the Augustinians in the West after Augustine's death in 430. It was only with the revival of Augustine's doctrine of predestination by Luther and Calvin that the Reformation began to recover the abandoned Augustinian heritage. On the other four covenantal doctrines, there has never been any agreement. In 1054, Eastern Orthodoxy split with Western Catholicism over the question of proper hierarchy. 
Pope versus Patriarch, Church versus State. Questions of church and state in the West came to a head in the 11th century, culminating with King Henry IV's decision to stand barefoot in the snow at Canossa for three days in 1077. In his successful attempt to get Pope Gregory VII to remove his 1076 excommunication, this debate over the laity's control of the church, investiture, still goes on today. Vatican II in the early 1960s was an extension of this ancient debate within Catholicism, and this debate has escalated. There has been no settlement. Next, the debate over the nature, function, and connections of canon law and civil law in the West began shortly after Gregory granted Henry his wish. There has been no settlement of this debate either. No one pays much attention to canon law. Three and a half centuries after Canossa, the Reformation split Europe and Western Christendom over the question of ecclesiastical sanctions. Who has the right to excommunicate whom? What is the nature of the sacraments, baptism, and Holy Communion? How many sacraments are there? There has been no settlement. The Roman Church's sale of indulgences, escape routes for the dead out of a place of sanctions called purgatory, was the catalyst for the debate. Finally, millennialism remains this century's great point of contention within evangelical Protestantism. That other great eschatological movement, Marxist communism, visibly collapsed as an ideal in late 1989. As the 20th century has worn on, the debates over eschatology have intensified. The latest is the debate over the New World Order. The Sovereignty of God Calvin left no doubt regarding his view of the sovereignty of God. He was an Augustinian. So was Martin Luther. But his successors, beginning almost immediately with Philip Melanchthon, returned to a far more Pelagian outlook. Calvin left few doubts about hierarchy either. The Church is Presbyterian in structure, and the State is to protect the Church. Quote, Yet civil government has as its appointed end, so long as we live among men, to cherish and protect the outward worship of God, to defend sound doctrine of piety and the position of the Church, to adjust our life to the society of men, to form our social behavior to civil righteousness, to reconcile us with one another, and to promote general peace and tranquility. End quote. He affirmed the ideal of the Christian state. This outlook has been a major embarrassment for his post-1788 American followers. For Calvin, as for Aquinas, Christendom included the state and all other institutions. In the post-1788 era, the very concept of Christendom has become anathema to almost all Protestants, indicating that deists, the Unitarians, and the post-Munster Anabaptists have triumphed over original Calvinism specifically and pre-Newtonian European thought and culture generally. But in the era of the Reformation, Calvin's viewpoint was not revolutionary. Indeed, any departure from such a view would have been regarded as revolutionary. Not until the Civil War of the 1640s did even a handful of Englishmen regard this view of church and state relations as dangerous to religious liberties. Where we see a divided Calvin is in two aspects of the biblical covenant model, law and historical sanctions. 
civil law and civil sanctions. Calvin, in the Institutes, declared a view of civil law that was clearly scholastic. He defended the concept of natural law. In his sermons on Deuteronomy, however, he declared a view of civil law that has to be regarded as theonomic. He appealed to the Old Testament case laws to justify capital punishment for apostasy, sermons 87 through 89 and 103, murder, 113, eye for eye, false witness, 115 and 116, rebellious teenagers, 123, adultery, 128 and 29, and kidnapping, 138. There seems to be a conflict in Calvin's thought between judicial theory institutes and practice sermons on Deuteronomy. In the Institutes, Calvin rejected the idea that the state has an obligation to adopt the civil laws of the Israelites. He rejected, as perilous and seditious, the opinion of those, quote, who deny that a commonwealth is duly framed which neglects the political system of Moses and is ruled by the common laws of nations, end quote. This statement appeared in the 1536 edition of the Institutes, published just one year after the fall of the communist polygamists and Anabaptists at Munster. Calvin divided the Mosaic laws into the familiar categories of moral, ceremonial, and judicial. He recognized that, quote, ceremonial and judicial laws pertain also to morals, end quote. The ceremonial laws are abrogated. So are the judicial laws, quote, but if this is true, surely every nation is left free to make such laws as it foresees to be profitable for itself, end quote. But he added this warning, quote, Yet these must be in conformity to that perpetual rule of love, so that they indeed vary in form but have the same purpose. For I do not think that those barbarous and savage laws, such as gave honor to thieves, permitted promiscuous intercourse, and others both more filthy and more absurd, are to be regarded as laws. For they are abhorrent, not only to all justice, but to all humanity and gentleness, end quote. Some civil laws are not binding civil laws. What are the criteria of morally binding civil laws? Justice, humanity, and gentleness. He summarized these three in the term equity. Quote, equity, because it is natural, cannot but be the same for all, and therefore this same purpose ought to apply to all laws, whatever their object. End quote. In short, quote, equity alone must be the goal and rule and limit of all laws. End quote. All of this was utterly conventional and had been since at least the 12th century, but especially after Aquinas. This was medieval scholasticism. It did not survive Newton's worldview, or Kant's. Van Til's Half a Legacy Nevertheless, no post-1788 Reformed Protestant theologian officially abandoned Calvin's view of civil law until 1973. R.J. Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law Rushduni was unfamiliar with the Calvin's sermons on Deuteronomy. He considered only the Institute's defense of natural law theory. The philosophical and ethical foundation of Calvin's theory of civil law was his view of equitable natural law. It was this assumption that had been abandoned over four decades earlier by Van Til, beginning in the 1920s. It was Van Til alone who rejected all traces of natural law theory in apologetics, meaning the intellectual defense of the faith. He traced scholasticism's rationalist methodology down through Lutheranism and modern fundamentalism, which he attacked at every point. He dedicated his career to demonstrating that any appeal 
to the hypothetical neutrality and universality of the reason of self-proclaimed autonomous man is a snare and a delusion. Thus, Van Til's system broke cleanly and totally from the view of civil law that Calvin defended in the Institutes. But Van Til was careful never to discuss civil law. He only discussed the narrow issues of philosophy, for example, natural law as it relates to such topics as epistemology, the scholastic proofs of God, etc. Because of this unwillingness on his part to extend the obvious implications of his presuppositional thought to the realm of social theory, Van Til could claim that he was not a Christian Reconstructionist. His intellectual position was reminiscent of Charles Lyell's, the systematizer of uniformitarian geology, who insisted for several years after the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species that he himself was not a Darwinist, since he did not believe that man had evolved. Man was discontinuous from nature, he insisted. Yet it was Lyell's doctrine of continuity in geological development, measured by the presence of fossils, that had led Darwin to his theory of organic continuity. It was Darwin's reading of Lyell's Principles of Geology, 1833, on the famous voyage of the Beagle, that persuaded Darwin to adopt a new explanation of biological development, evolution by natural selection. Late in life, almost a decade after the origin appeared, Lyell finally adopted Darwin's views. Similarly, it was Rush Dooney's reading of Van Til in the 1950s that led him in the late 1960s to begin to develop the structure of theonomy. This cautiousness on Van Til's part has created tactical problems for his theonomic followers. They have difficulty with the question, quote, Why didn't Van Til follow? End quote. Not until I wrote Political Polytheism did any theonomist address this question directly. Rush Dooney appealed directly to Van Til's work as his philosophical starting point for theonomy. In other words, he appealed to Van Til rather than Calvin. Hence, in this sense, Rush Dooney admitted from the start that Calvin was not a modern theonomist, since Calvin was not a Van Tilian. Theonomy is therefore a package deal. It was Calvin's defense of natural law theory that drew Rush Dooney's ire. But Rush Dooney's rejection of Calvin on this point was simply an extension of Van Til's original attack on Aquinas, Lutheranism, and fundamentalism. Van Til prudently skipped Calvin when he directed his withering fire on natural law theory, preferring instead to emphasize Calvin's view of the sovereignty of God, the creator-creature distinction, the Holy Spirit, the ethical fall of man, the Trinity, and so forth. Rush Dooney gets into trouble with anti-theonomic Calvinists who claim to be Van Til's disciples, yet their quarrel is really with Van Til. Bonson, following Van Til's example, long remained judicially silent on this aspect of Van Til's thought, Calvin versus Van Til on natural law theory. Was Calvin a theonomist? The question remains, why did Calvin devote so much time to the civil laws of Deuteronomy? Why did he recommend the continuing enforcement of the capital sanctions required by several of those laws? The answer is simple, because he was a theonomist in his view of Old Testament law. He saw those laws as the embodiment in covenantal history of God's principles of civil justice. While he did not insist that they are universally required today, he did not dismiss them as not being applicable in a Christian state. In the Institutes, Calvin made this defense of old covenant law, specifically the so-called Second Table. Quote, now we can understand the nature of the fruits of repentance, 
the duties of piety toward God, of charity toward man, and in the whole of life, holiness and purity. Briefly, the more earnestly any man measures his life by the standard of God's law, the surer are the signs of repentance that he shows. Therefore, the Spirit, while he urges us to repentance, often recalls us now to the individual precepts of the law, now to the duties of the second table. End quote. While the modern Calvinists can always argue, quote, Yes, but Calvin meant only the rule of law in each individual's heart. End quote. This hardly squares with Calvin's view of Christendom, and with his insistence that the civil magistrate should not neglect enforcing the first table of the law, let alone neglecting the second. With respect to individual judicial guidelines, Calvin was also a defender of old covenant law. In his brief instruction for arming all the good faithful against the errors of the common sect of the Anabaptists, 1544, he wrote, quote, Let us hold this position, that with regard to true spiritual justice, that is to say, with regard to a faithful man walking in good conscience and being whole before God in both his vocation and in all his works, there exists a plain and complete guideline for it in the law of Moses, to which we need simply cling if we want to follow the right path. Thus, whoever adds to or takes away anything from it exceeds the limits. Therefore, our position is sure and infallible. End quote. Natural Law in the 16th Century What should be clear to anyone who investigates this question is that Calvin's view of natural law, like Aquinas's view, was colored by the existence of a general view of ethics that had been formed by centuries of Christian preaching, legislating, and ethical disputing. Calvin had been trained in the law, and the scholastic legal order was heavily Christian. In Northern Europe, the Italian Renaissance's revival of classical rationalism, as well as classical and Jewish occultism, Kabbalah, did not completely penetrate the culture. The sense of justice, humanity, and gentleness that prevailed in early modern Northern Europe was understood in terms of biblical moral standards. This meant the Ten Commandments. What the commentators perceived as universal principles were in fact Old Testament legal principles that had also been adopted sporadically by other civilizations. Calvin warned against the sufficiency of natural law. Quote, Accordingly, because it is necessary both for our dullness and for our arrogance, the Lord has provided us with a written law to give us a clear witness of what was to, to obscure in the natural law, shake off our listlessness, and strike more vigorously our mind and memory. End quote. Here he was speaking of lawful worship. This, too, was a scholastic heritage. The knowledge of God's will was regarded as clearer for civil law than his law of worship. Nevertheless, Calvin did state with respect to civil law that, quote, The Lord, through the hand of Moses, did not give that law to be proclaimed among all nations and to be in force everywhere. But when he had taken the Jewish nation into his safekeeping, defense, and protection, he also willed to be a lawgiver, especially to it, end quote. By separating the specifics of Old Testament civil law from the general equity principle of civil justice, he left the door open to generations of Calvinists who could, in good conscience, call themselves Calvinists and still accept a wide range of political and economic humanism, including the legalization of abortion. As publicly advocated, for example, by Westminster Seminary's late professor Paul Woolley, natural law is devoid of authoritative content. The phrase merely serves 
as a covering for whatever judicial system a natural law theorist chooses. There are few natural law theorists remaining in our day, however. In principle, Kant's system overwhelmed most of the non-Christian defenders of the idea, and modern democratic humanism, Darwinian to the core, has overwhelmed the rest. Only within Christian circles and isolated pockets of the libertarian movement do we still find defenders of natural law theory. Both movements have been split by the abortion question. Natural law has not led to a resolution of this issue. John Calvin accepted the natural law theory of his day, an outlook heavily influenced by Christian teaching. He saw Old Testament laws as examples of natural law theory in history. He advocated the imposition of public execution for many of the infractions listed in the Old Testament's Mosaic law. Thus, his defense of natural law theory was, a, was of a very different character from anything proposed by post-Newtonian, post-Darwinian, post-Heisenberg, and post-Van Til Calvinist defenders of Christian political pluralism, who would strip away every trace of the Mosaic law from contemporary civil law and return us to Noah, whose only direct command from God to impose a specific negative sanction involved the crime of murder. Having abandoned both Calvin and Van Til, they would return us to the Unitarian politics of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and do so in the name of Jesus. God's Sanctions in History Here we find a similar discrepancy. Calvin wrote in his sermons on Deuteronomy that God's positive and negative sanctions apply directly to individuals in history. If this is true, then it becomes possible for men to construct ethical theory in terms of God's law. If covenant keepers, as a class, are generally blessed in history because of their outward and inward obedience to God's law, and covenant breakers, as a class, are generally cursed in history because of their rebellion against God's law, then the expansion of Christian civilization is assured. On the other hand, to the extent that this positive covenantal correlation does not apply in history, it becomes less possible for men to construct ethical theory in terms of God's law. If covenant keepers as a class are not predictably blessed in history, and covenant breakers as a class are not predictably cursed in history, then the expansion of Christian civilization is impossible. The church will remain a ghetto within a pagan civilization. In the Institutes, Calvin's affirmation of the historical predictability of God's sanctions was more muted. This has led to confusion among his followers regarding his actual beliefs. So let us begin with his statements asserting the inescapability of God's predictable historical sanctions. We return to his sermons on Deuteronomy. I begin with his view favoring the continuing validity of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, the words of the law. He cites Deuteronomy 27.26, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. End quote. His comments do not indicate any doubt on his part regarding the comprehensive claims of God's law in history. They are so great that we need his mercy. Quote, For this cause, therefore, it is said, Cursed be he who does not confirm the words of, his, of this law. He is not here speaking of one or two commandments, or of some part of them, but of the whole law, every part and parcel thereof without exception. And indeed, we ought to think of how St. James says that he who has forbidden to steal has also forbidden to commit adultery, and that he who has forbidden to murder has also forbidden false witnessing. We must not rend God's justice in pieces. In whatever way we offend, 
we violate God's law and despise his majesty. But he will be acknowledged in his law throughout in all points, and not just in part, as I have told you before. End quote. Quote, but here is a dreadful sentence, and such a one as ought to make the hairs stand stiff on our heads. Cursed shall he be who does not perform all the words of this law. Who says this? It is God himself. It is, then, a definitive sentence, such as admits of no appeal beyond itself. God will have all men confess it so. Yea, he will have every man confess it with his own mouth. What, then, remains for us to do? Where is the hope of salvation? From this we see that if we had only the Ten Commandments of the law, we should be utterly undone and perish. It is necessary for us to have recourse to his mercy, which outstrips his justice. As St. James says, James 2.13, God's goodness, then, must be manifest towards us to deliver us from the damnation all of us would experience if this curse should stand and there be no grace to overcome it. End quote. The Case Laws did he take the details of the Mosaic case laws seriously? Yes. He went to Leviticus 18 and 20 in search of the definition of incest. He writes that, quote, These degrees of consanguinity should be observed, for without such order, what would become of things? How would we differ from bulls and asses? End quote. He did not make his judicial case on the basis of an appeal to natural law theory. This comparison of a brute beast and a man without God's law is a familiar one in Calvin's judicial theology. Quote, How are we made the people of God, except by being his church, and by having the use of his sacraments? And that is all the same as if he appeared among us. For we may not expect that God should come down from heaven in his own person, or send his angels to us. Rather, the true mark whereby he will be known to be present among us is the preaching of his word, purely unto us, for there can be no doubt, but that then he bears rule in our midst. So then, let this thing profit us, that we know that our Lord receives us to himself, and will have us to be his, of his own household. Seeing it so, let us take pains to obey him in all our life, and to keep his commandments. Let us not wander like brute beasts, as the wretched unbelievers do, because they never knew what it was to be of the house of God. End quote. Emphasis added. Calvin's Judicial Theology Calvin believed in the primacy of obedience. This is why his theology is intensely judicial. Quote, and we can see that the promise is not empty when we continue reading, Keep the commandment I set before you this day, says Moses, that you swerve neither to the left nor to the right to go after strange gods and to worship them. We see how God continually reminds us of obedience to his word so that we should serve him, though not in that hypocrisy to which we are so much inclined. Let us remember, therefore, this lesson, that to worship our God sincerely we must evermore begin by hearkening to his voice and by giving ear to what he commands us. For if every man goes after his own way, we shall wander. We may well run, but we shall never be a whit nearer to the right way, but rather farther away from it, end quote. Here Calvin's view of God's sanctions in history is clearly theonomic. When he expounded the actual texts of the Old Testament, he wrote in the present tense, Calvin believed that these sanctions still apply in the New Testament times. But his sermons on Deuteronomy are not familiar to most Calvinists. They were printed in English in 1583, 
almost two decades after his death, and then not reprinted until 1987. The average reader knows him, if at all, only from the Institutes. A few readers may have consulted his commentaries. In the Institutes, he qualifies his explicit exegesis of the Deuteronomy sermons. He says of God that, quote, He frequently allows the wicked and male factors to exalt unpunished for some time, while he permits the upright and deserving to be tossed about by many adversities, and even to be oppressed by the malice and iniquity of the impious. End quote. This points to the fact that, quote, when he leaves many sins unpunished, there will be another judgment to which have been deferred the sins yet to be punished. End quote. The question is, what does he mean by the phrase, quote, for some time? End quote. How long is this? He does not say. He does say this, quote, and to urge us in every way, he promises both blessings in the present life and everlasting blessedness to those who obediently keep his commandments. He threatens the transgressors no less with present calamities than with the punishment of eternal death. End quote. He says that quote, a long list of present blessings and curses is also enumerated in the law. End quote. Here it is sanctions. He says that quote, the temporal punishments inflicted upon a few scoundrels are testimonies of the divine wrath against sin, and of the judgment some day coming to all sinners, though many go unpunished till the end of this life. End quote. This does not have the same force as his sermons on Deuteronomy. The question is, do these negative sanctions come often enough to instill fear in the hearts of the wicked, if they would but pay attention to the external events of their lives? In the Deuteronomy sermons, he says that this is the case. He does not say this in the Institutes, however. Trials and Tribulations, the Institutes His discussion in the Institutes of the Patriarchs points to their trials and tribulations on earth. Abraham was a wanderer. He lived among barbarous neighbors. He had no natural son until late in life. He was asked to sacrifice his natural son. Quote, in short, throughout life he was so tossed and troubled that if anyone wished to paint a picture of calamitous life, he could find no model more appropriate than Abraham's. End quote. Yet the Bible clearly says that Abraham was a very rich man. Genesis 13.2 he defeated his enemies in battle, Genesis 14. He lived a long life, fathering nations long after Isaac had married, Genesis 25. Calvin recognizes that someone would object and point out that Abraham, quote, finally came safely through so great tempests. We will not say that he leads a happy life who struggles long and hard through infinite difficulties, but he who calmly enjoys present benefits without feeling misfortune, end quote. Why then does Calvin focus on the more troublesome aspects of Abraham's life. He does the same thing with Isaac and Jacob. Apparently, he is trying to persuade the reader that eternal life is worth the effort to persevere. Quote, Finally, it is clearly established that in all their efforts in this life, they set before themselves the blessedness of the future life. End quote. He selectively cites David's Psalms. Quote, he lets good men languish in darkness and filth, while the wicked almost shine among the stars. So very greatly does impiety prosper and flourish. End quote. Then comes the capstone, citing Psalm 73, which David begins by admitting that he was troubled by the prosperity of the wicked. The psalm ends, however, with an affirmation of David's faith that God sets evil men in slippery places. Verse 18. Here is the heart of the whole psalm, the reason why David wrote it. The period of good times for the wicked eventually ends in history. 
Calvin ignores this crucial aspect of the psalm and then concludes, quote, Let us therefore learn from this confession of David's that the holy patriarchs under the Old Testament were aware how rarely or never God fulfills in this world what he promises to his servants, and that they therefore lifted up their hearts to God's sanctuary, in which they found hidden what does not appear in the shadows of the present life. This place was the last judgment of God. End quote. Trials and Tribulations The Commentaries Yet if we turn to his commentary on this psalm, we see that he there maintained his belief in God's temporal sanctions. Commenting on verse 18, the quote, slippery places, end quote, verse, Calvin writes that, quote, David, having now gone through his conflicts, begins, if we may use the expression, to be a new man, and he speaks with a quiet and composed mind, being, as it were, elevated on a watchtower, from which he obtained a clear and distinct view of things which before were hidden from him, end quote. Now David could see the truth about the wicked of this world. They are being set up by God for a fall. Calvin then offers this opinion, quote, When God perceives that we are so slow in considering his judgments, he inflicts upon the ungodly judgments of a very severe kind, and pursues them with unusual tokens of his wrath, as if he would make the earth to tremble, in order thereby to correct our dullness of apprehension, end quote. For the person who knows Calvin through the Institutes, it may appear as though Calvin saw no judicial or covenantal pattern to God's sanctions in history. But if we turn to his commentaries, we find just the opposite. How the reader is to account for this is a challenge. When Calvin exposited specific passages in Scripture, he offered a theonomic view of God's sanctions in history. But in the Institutes, this clarity of vision is lacking. I cannot offer a plausible explanation. Perhaps he was writing for a different audience. Scholars who were heavily influenced by the categories of scholastic natural law theory, rather than laymen sitting in a church. All I can say with confidence is that this dualism in his writings has created problems for all subsequent Calvinist ethicists, especially those interested in social ethics. The theonomists can appeal to the exposition of Old Testament law, and the non-theonomists can appeal to the institutes. His judicial legacy is divided. Foundations of Calvin's Social Theory What is the nature of social change? This is the question of modern social theory. Humanist scholars usually focus on the perceived dualism between mind and matter, idea versus history, as the primary basis of social development. The Bible, in contrast, focuses on the question of ethics, covenant-keeping versus covenant-breaking. This raises the key issue in biblical social theory, God's sanctions in history. In his sermons on Deuteronomy, Calvin's view of history is straightforward. God brings his sanctions, blessings, and cursings in the midst of history in terms of each man's obedience to his law. Each man reaps what he sows in history. Calvin did not qualify this statement in any significant way, and he repeated it over and over. Quote, For if any one of us should reckon up what he has suffered all the days of his life, and then examine the state of David or Abraham, doubtless he will find himself to be in a better state than were those holy fathers. For they, as the Apostle says, Hebrews 11.13, only saw things afar off, things that are right before our eyes. God promised to be their Savior. He had chosen them to be, as it were, of his household. But meanwhile, where was he who was to be their promised Redeemer? Where was the doctrine that is made so clear to us in the Gospel, 
concerning the resurrection. They knew the same afar off, but now it is declared so us in the gospel in such a way that we may indeed say, as our Lord Jesus Christ gives us to understand, that blessed are the ears that hear the things that are told us concerning him, and the eyes that see the things that we see. For the holy kings and prophets longed for the same, and could not obtain it. Matthew thirteen sixteen and following. Emphasis added. We therefore have a much more excellent estate than they had who lived under the law. This is the difference of which I speak, which needed to be supplied by God because of the imperfection, lack of completion, that was in the doctrine concerning the revelation of the heavenly life, while the fathers only knew by outward tokens, although they were dear to God. Now that Jesus Christ has come down to us, and has shown us how we ought to follow him by suffering many afflictions, as it is told us, Matthew 16.24, Romans 8.29, in bearing poverty and reproach and all such like things, and to be short, that our life must be, as it were, a kind of death. Since we know all this, and the infinite power of God is uttered in his raising up Jesus Christ from death, and in his exalting him to glory of heaven, should we not take from this a good courage? Should not the sweeten, this sweeten all the afflictions we can suffer? Do we not have cause to rejoice in the midst of our sorrows? Let us note, then, that if the patriarchs were more blessed by God than we are, concerning this present life, we are not to wonder at it at all, for the reason for it is apparent. But no matter how things go, yet is this saying of St. Paul always verified, that the fear of God holds promise not only for the life to come, but also for this present life, First Timothy 4.8. Let us therefore walk in obedience to God and then we can be assured that he will show himself a father to us, yea, even in the maintenance of our bodies, at least as far as concerns keeping and preserving us in peace, delivering us from all evils, and providing for us our necessities. God, I say, will make us to feel his blessing in all these things, so that we walk in his fear. Emphasis added. End quote. Blessings in History, the Fruit of Obedience Calvin was not speaking merely of the great sweeping movements in mankind's history. He was speaking of the small things of each man's life. There is orderliness in a man's life because there is a coherent, predictable relationship between obedience and blessings. God does not limit his covenantal blessings to the afterlife. Quote, Let us therefore be persuaded that our lives will always be accursed unless we return to this point whereto Moses leads us, namely to hearken to the voice of our God to be thereby moved and continually confirmed in that fact that he cares for our salvation, and not only for the eternal salvation of our persons, but also for the maintenance of our state in this earthly life, to make us taste at present of his love and goodness in such a way as many content and suffice us, waiting till we may have our fill thereof, and behold face to face that which we are now constrained to look upon, as it were, through a glass and in the dark, First Corinthians 13.12. That is one more thing we ought to remember from this text, where it is said that we will be blessed if we hearken to the voice of the Lord our God. This is to be applied to all parts of our lives. For example, when a man wishes to prosper in his own person, that is, he desires to employ himself in the service of God and to obtain some grace so that he may not be unprofitable in this life, but that God may be honored by him, let him think thus to himself, Lord, I am yours, dispose of me as you will. Here I am, ready to obey you. This is the place at which we must begin if we desire God to guide us and create in us the disposition to serve him, so that his blessings may appear and lighten upon us and upon our persons, 
so it is concerning every man's household. End quote. Emphasis added. The same thing is true. Quote, Cattle, food, and all other things, for we see here in this text that nothing is forgotten, and God meant to make us to perceive his infinite goodness, and that he declares that he will deal with our smallest affairs, which one of our own equals would be loath to meddle with. If we have a friend, we should be very loath, indeed, and ashamed to use his help unless it were in a matter of great importance. But we see here that God goes into our sheepfolds, and into the stalls of our cattle and oxen, and he goes into our fields, and he cares for all other things as well. Since we see him abase himself thus far, shouldn't we be ravished to honor him and to magnify his bounty? End quote. Emphasis added. God promised the Israelites that they would be blessed, so as to confirm his covenant with their fathers. Quote, but thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. End quote. Deuteronomy 8, 18. Calvin echoed this view. God's blessings in history point to his faithfulness in eternity. Quote, Let us conclude, then, that when God says that he shall bless us in the fruit of the earth, and that he shall bless us in the fruit of our cattle, it is a most certain argument that he will not forget the principal thing. These things are lowly and of little count, and many times men despise them, and yet we see that God takes care of them notwithstanding. Since this is so, will he forget our souls, which he has created after his own image, which also he has no, so dearly redeemed with the sacred blood of his Son? Surely not. First of all, therefore, let us acknowledge God's favor toward us, in abasing himself so far as to direct and govern everything that belongs to our lives and sustenance. And from there let us rise up higher, and understand that he will not fail us in the things that surpass this present life, but rather than in, in the chief things that belong to our life, Indeed, even in this world, God will stretch forth his hand to furnish us always with all things that are needful. End quote. Emphasis added. In the Institutes, he did not go into comparable detail. Thus, we find there no basis of determining what Calvin's view of social change was. It is not possible to construct a concept of judicial cause and effect in history based on Calvin's Institutes. This is why those Calvinists whose goal is to assert the indeterminacy of Calvinistic social theory, a Cole Porter view of social theory, anything goes, meaning a theory of social open-endedness, concentrate their attention on the Institutes. The anti-theonomists are self-consciously not interested in exploring the Calvin of the sermons on Deuteronomy. This is understandable, but it has produced misleading historical scholarship. Conclusion John Calvin assumed far more regarding the Christendom than he put on paper. Thus, those of his followers who today reject both the historic ideal and possibility of Christendom, quote, Constantinianism, end quote, in the jargon of Calvinistic pluralism, are not continually confronted in his writings with the magnitude of the difference between Calvin's worldview and their own. Having dismissed Calvin's clear-cut assertion of the state as the protector of the church, they also dismiss his ideal of Christendom. They necessarily pass over in silence his sermons on Deuteronomy regarding the, the legitimacy of the Mosaic Law's civil sanctions, as well as his defense of the existence of God's sanctions in history. Then they recoil in shock, horror, and outrage from the task that the Theonomists have placed before them since 1973, to offer a Calvinistic view of social theory without one 
Calvin's view of civil sanctions, and two, Calvin's view of the future of the gospel. They point defensively to his acceptance of 16th century Protestant natural law theory, yet they also reject the Christian foundations of that theory, the foundations that Van Til's apologetics destroyed. In the case of the pluralists on the faculty of Westminster Seminary, they publicly proclaim their commitment to Van Til's apologetics, yet they steadfastly ignore the implications for social and political theory of his rejection of natural law theory. They cling to Van Til's pessimistic amillennialism, itself a departure from Calvin, and then they justify their rejection of God's predictable, biblical, law-based sanctions in history on this basis. Some of them even come in the name of both pluralism and Calvin, but they have this nagging problem, Calvin's handling of Servetus. They have refused for sixty years to address this thorny political problem, yet it is at the heart of Calvin's view of society. It is time for every Calvinist to ask himself, and his seminary instructors, these questions. Quote, if it was morally and judicially wrong for Calvin to have approved of the execution of Servetus, then how much of Calvinism must we scrap, and on what biblically exegetical basis? What does this comprehensive theological replacement for Calvin's equally comprehensive worldview look like? Finally, why haven't post-1788 Calvinists offered us this alternative? Students at Westminster Seminary have been unclear from the opening of the seminary in 1929 regarding the conflicting legacies of Calvin and Van Til. This should not be surprising. Van Til did his best to cover up these conflicts throughout his career, and not even Rush Dooney and Bonson could get him to clarify his position. His students did not perceive that there was a problem, since Westminster Seminary rarely, if ever, assigns a book by Calvin, let alone his sermons on Deuteronomy. What is surprising, however, is that the faculty decided in 1990 to go into print with Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. With these conflicting legacies visible to the careful reader, they have now opened that controversial can of worms that Van Til spent half a century trying to keep sealed up tight. He gave us the can opener, his rejection of natural law theory, and then systematically refused to use it on the can marked civil law. The theonomist picked up Van Til's can opener in 1973 and went to work on that can. For 17 years, we poured the worms into Calvinism's kitchen sink. Then came theonomy, a reformed critique, which generally continues to pretend that after 17 years, these worms aren't stinking up the sink. I now formally invite Westminster's faculty to help us theonomists get them either tossed into the garbage or added, for cultural nutrition's sake, to Calvin's casserole. We may need some exegetical spices for this latter operation. It is time for the faculty of Westminster Theological Seminary to stop playing an academic version of the children's game of Let's Pretend. They must make their choices publicly, 1. Calvin's judicial legacy in the Institutes or in his sermons on Deuteronomy. 2. Van Til on natural law or Calvin on natural law. The choices are inescapable. To defer making them is to live with either judicial schizophrenia or judicial agnosticism. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. 
We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.